everyone. I'm Sam. And I'm Caitlin. And this is Team Get Over It. We're an all-female team participating in the greatest motoring adventure on the planet. The Mongol Rally. We'll be driving 10,000 miles across mountains, deserts, and unknown terrain. And along the way, we hope to spread our feminist and environmental ideals. Join us here as we share our stories, thoughts, and interviews as we get ready for the Mongol Rally 2021. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Get Over It podcast. Hello. (laughs) Hi. We are super excited today because we are sitting here with Dr. Celestine, a board-certified obstetrician and gynecologist who specializes in minimally invasive gynecological surgeries and is the creator and host of the amazing podcast, for vaginas only, which we'll link in the description of this episode. So today we're going to be talking about some of the most common questions and misconceptions surrounding the reproductive system and its associated health care. So first off, welcome Dr. Celestine and thank you so much for coming on. Hi, thank you guys for having me. I'm so glad to be on here and to bust some of these myths. <laughs> yeah, let's, let's get right into it. Um, we've got to say... We already told you before we started recording, but we loved your podcast, everything about it. Um, it's You're hilarious in your delivery of the information, and we were just like honestly shocked with how little we know about our own reproductive system. So Dr. Celestine, could you start by just telling us a little bit about yourself, what you do, and how you got started with the podcast? Yeah. So um, like you said, I'm a board certified OBGYN. So not only do I do surgeries, I deliver babies, I see patients in the office, I do GYN exams, the whole gambit of the spectrum of my field. Um, (laughs) I've been practicing on my own since 2016. And I actually started the podcast in 2017 um, because I just felt like there was a lot of misinformation out there and a lot of people that just didn't even know, didn't have the ammunition to ask the right questions. People coming to my office, not just my patients, but my friends, my family. Mm. And I wanted a resource for everyone to be able to know what I know because what I know shouldn't be so elite. It shouldn't be just me that knows this. I feel like everybody needs to know what I know. So that's why I started Four Vaginas Only, the podcast. I love what you just said there about like not even like knowing like what to ask or like what you don't know. And it's so true. And I think that's what your podcast does really well is like sort of gives the information so that we can start asking the questions, right? Exactly. That's one of my main goals. I'm not expecting you to be a doctor to know every little thing, but I hope that every person out there can at least understand their body and what's going on with them. Yeah, totally. So along that vein, because, you know, we just said generally people are pretty unfamiliar about their own anatomy um, and they often shy away from using like proper names for their sexual organs. So I would like you to, if you could, could you briefly name the major like female reproductive and sex organs and describe their function? Sure. So 
a lot of misconception kind of starts with calling it the vagina, right? So mm. when you look at your the female genital organs, the outside, what you're seeing, which kind of looks like lips as we describe them, that's actually your vulva or your labia. They can kind of be interchangeable. So you have larger ones on the outside and smaller ones with no hair on the inside. So that's your labia majora on the outside and labia minora, which are the smaller ones or minor on the inside, um, where those come to a peak at the top. That's where the clitoris is. A little bit below that is the urethra, which is actually where you urinate or pee from. And then even below that, the opening and into that tunnel is what is the actual vagina. So the vagina is actually inside of your body and not any of the external structures. I remember when I first learned that, honestly, like I'm going to like say it for the entire interweb to hear, like I just learned that like a month ago (laughs) and it was like one of those moments where you're just like your brain just like sort of like implodes you're like oh my god because you always hear it and I think you talk about this in your first episode like people very generally refer to I guess sort of like the female reproductive organs and like what you can see is like oh like the vagina but Mm -hmm. in reality you can't actually see the vagina I know. From the yeah. outside. And I kind of – I mean, I can't say I don't do that too. I kind of make it <laughs> simplistic. Um, mm. But I hope that, you know, the people that I'm speaking to are just using that terminology with will either ask me what I mean or understand that I'm just making it simple. Because it's so – it's difficult sometimes to just say, oh, you know, that's going on on your vulva. Like if you're just having a conversation yeah. with friends, mm. you're not really going to say that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I can imagine like especially like I think it's something the distinction – is yeah. just now starting to be made in like sort of conversations with right. people. So it's like when you're like, yeah, and it is. But like if you're talking with friends and you're like, oh, you know, I have this going on with my vulva. And then they're <laughs> just like, excuse me? Yeah, <laughs> you're what? It's a strange. But I feel like a lot of people too, I don't know if you guys watched Orange is the New Black, but they had an episode mm. kind of about the vagina anatomy. And I feel like oh. that's when a lot of patients and friends were kind of coming to me like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I didn't really know that. <laughs> so that was a pivotal moment too. <laughs> it was. And yeah. sort of speaking of the vagina, let's just like get right in there. Um, We want to talk about vaginal discharge because I think it's something I know for me personally, like in my own healthcare with like my reproductive organs, it's been something that's like I've been unsure of. I don't know sort of like how much is normal. And I think that's a conversation you see happen a lot. It's like, is this discharge normal? Like when should we be concerned? So like in your expert opinion, like well, first off, what is vaginal discharge and how much is normal and when or if people should get concerned about it? So vaginal discharge is just a fluid secretion from the vagina. So the vagina has different glands associated with it as well, and it just secretes a fluid. So in terms of what amount, there's no technical amount that's normal versus Mm. abnormal. It's more... One, understanding what's normal for you, because some people don't understand that you can have discharge every single day. So I'll have one completely normal patient that has discharge every single day and another completely normal patient that only sees discharge maybe right before her period or something like that. So everybody kind of has a different their, – their area, their vaginal area has a different way of producing this fluid. What's more important is – kind of understanding what's abnormal. So Mm. it has an odor that you're not used to, or if the color changes, um, if it's yellow, green, even like a grayish color, 
because mostly the normal discharge is either white, uh, sticky, clear. Sometimes it could even be like an egg, um, egg white kind of consistency. And it also changes with your menstrual cycle. So, you know, right before ovulation, the discharge is a little bit different than after your period. So it can change multiple times throughout the month. (laughs) Okay. So it's really about getting to know your own vagina and your own discharge then. Okay. Exactly. Time to become friends with your... (laughs) Because it's so easy to, and I talk to people about this almost every day. Um, And I'll even test it for them, show them what I'm seeing so that they understand that this is actually normal even if their friends think it's not. <laughs> well, that's fantastic though. Yeah. I really like that. I liked because I, I, yes, we were listening to your podcast yesterday yeah. and you know, I loved that you were just like, okay guys, grab a mirror. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I think, think that's one so- of my like favorite episodes is the vagina anatomy one. Cause it's just yeah. so, all of my episodes are just kind of like, I'm talking, I'm just talking to you guys. I'm talking to my friends, you know, and I'm wanting you to mm-hmm. really look like, yeah, grab that mirror, take a look, point, at the things I'm talking about, you know, separate the labia, figure mm-hmm. it out because you need to yeah. know. Yeah. Yeah. It's like- kind of like fun. It's like a hands-on podcast. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you're not just listening, you're experiencing. Like, let's get in there together. I loved it. It's <laughs> fantastic. So, okay. So uh, especially about discharge, um, there are tons of products out there marketed to people with like vaginas to improve their vaginal mm-hmm. hygiene. Like I, I remember gosh, what was it like those commercials that are saying like, oh, well, if you want to feel fresh and that, that always really confused mm-hmm. me because I didn't really understand what they were saying exactly. Um, so do you yeah. think that those kinds of products, are they helpful? Are they harmful? What does work? What doesn't work? Do we need to use them? What do you think? It depends on the product. So I think most of the ones that are advertised they are kind of on a spectrum. So on one end of the spectrum, you have douches, which I never think are needed. So Mm. really no one should be buying any product that you're actually inserting a fluid into the vaginal canal to quote unquote, clean it out or make it fresh because that actually can cause more infections Mm. because your vagina has a natural amount of bacteria. And although the word bacteria doesn't sound clean all the time, it is. It's a perfect balance in there to keep your vagina clean. And when you're washing it out with a douche, it messes everything up and can cause infection. So that's never, never, ever required. Um, Some of the other ones, like the wipes or like the washes Mm. that you just use on the outside, I'm kind of 50-50 on them. I feel like they're not like the best thing you can do to clean the whole vagina, well, really your labia, right? Because you're only really supposed to Mm. clean the outside, Um, Mm. is just mild soap and water every day. But... Sometimes if you're going to the gym or if you're, you know, getting really sweaty with any other activity and you're not showering and you might be just going straight to work or whatever, it might be helpful to use one of those just like pH balance wipes or, you know, something in between when you can't get a shower in. But to use them regularly, I don't think is necessary and I don't believe that really any OBGYN thinks so. Mm. That's really good to know. That's really helpful. Yeah. And some people can be allergic to these products. Um, So you don't really want anything with scents near your labia and your vulva. Sometimes that area responds differently than other areas of your body. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I think you say it in maybe your first episode where you say like if you have something you've been doing your entire life Mm -hmm. and it's working for you, like don't change it. Like Mm -hmm. don't switch to a product just because you have a friend that's using it, which (laughs) is true. Um, There's an entire like – 
there are buildings and buildings of like corporate marketing like people yeah. that are trying to figure out how to get you to buy this yeah, stuff. People are making millions off of it. Mm-hmm. Really, I don't know, it worries me sometimes, but. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it can yeah. be. Um, okay, so let's talk about sort of, I guess, the flip side. Like if something happens and maybe your like vaginal area doesn't get kept clean. Mm-hmm. Um, so sort of speaking of, and it's not always that, not always the cause obviously but like yeast infections talking about yeast infections um because many people with vaginas experience yeast infections Mm -hmm. some have them like recurring very easily some maybe only once or twice in their lifetime but can you tell us a little bit like what is a yeast infection exactly and is there sort of a best way to treat it or prevent it from happening Yeah, so a yeast infection is just an overgrowth of yeast in the vagina. So the vagina normally has some yeast in there that's part of Mm. that normal bacteria, normal kind of what's going on in there. Um, But certain things can make a shift in the bacteria and the yeast and cause the yeast to actually start to overgrow beyond any of the other bacteria in the vagina. And that's how you get a yeast infection. For it's not an STD first and foremost. Mm. Um, it's mm. literally just a change in the what we call the flora of the vagina mm. or the <laughs> pH of the vagina um, that causes this overgrowth of yeast. Now everybody experiences it a little differently. Some people, I have some women come in to me at like sixty-five years old, and they're like, "What is this? I've never had this before." And then there's Ooh. some, you know, young girls that have it every month, every two months, and they're like, "How do I get rid of it?" So everybody kind of has a different trigger. Um, mm. Common triggers for yeast infections can be like uh, like using a new condom that you haven't used before. Mm. Some people might get it with a new sexual partner. Not that it's an STD, but it's like a new – their partner's new bacteria is coming in contact with their vagina. And it's ah, okay. So that could be a reason. Um, it could be sometimes what you're eating. Sometimes it's super simple. We It's hard for people that have it chronically, meaning mm. all the time. We have to try to figure out what treatment works for them. We have to figure out what their trigger is because everybody has a little bit of a different trigger. And sometimes it just stops out of nowhere. Um, I've also seen some yeast infections more common with certain people depending on what birth controls they're using as well. Um, So it's different. It's kind of you have to play with it. Even as a doctor, it's not always cut and dry. So can birth controls have an effect on sort of how easily you get a yeast infection? Not necessarily. I wouldn't use that as a blanket statement at all. Okay. It's just um, certain people are sensitive to different types of hormones. Um, mm. every oh, that makes a sense. Hormone, and sometimes they respond, the vagina flora or the bacteria and yeast down there respond differently. So don't always blame your birth control. Definitely <laughs> not. <laughs> we are like running out of ideas at something that sometimes I try. Okay. That makes yeah. sense. Yeah, yeah, that's pretty wild because I have – and I even have some friends and they say like every time they take – what is it? Antibiotics, they get a yeast oh. infection. Yeah, that's because it's killing the bacteria in the uh, vagina. So it's allowing oh. the yeast to take over. So all the other bacteria that keep the yeast at bay are gone mm. because the antibiotic killed it all. So now the yeast is just like going crazy. Wow. That's, that's amazing. That's like – I can't even believe I didn't say that one. That's like the number one reason. Yeah. <laughs> Wow. wow. Yeah, there's oh, – wow, so interesting. Ooh. Yeah. Ooh. This is, like, honestly great. blowing my mind. I don't know if you can see, like, the little smoke coming out of my ears right now, but I I'm just sitting there. there. 
Well, that's really, yeah. Okay. So then kind of, kind of along that same vein of, you know, prevention or or Mm -hmm. checking and getting to know your body. Um, And, you know, this is something that I think has changed a lot, like even in the last 10 years, like I know I, I kind of talked about this with my friends in the past because sometimes like what's recommended keeps changing and there's a lot of confusion so I'm talking about like pap smears and pap tests. Because uh, I think I remember talking to my friends like when I turned like 2021, 20, you know, it was time for me to go get my first pap smear. And then some people were like, oh, but because like I wasn't sexually active then. So they were like, oh, but you're not sexually active. You don't need to get one. And then I have other friends that are like saying, like, why do you go so often? You don't have to go this often. And I was just like, oh, I don't know. So <laughs> I would like to know who should get a pap smear and when should you start getting them and how often should you get one? So you're not completely wrong. The rules okay. have changed, but they changed a long time ago. But a lot of oh. people, yeah, a lot of people are still, you know, if they're older than you, perhaps they might have mm. started their pap smears at a different time than mm. what's actually recommended now. I okay. would say the rules changed back even when I – was in residency so that was like uh, well, yeah. I live I live in like rural Canada so we're like yeah. 10 years behind <laughs> but yeah and you, I mean you guys probably even have different rules up there um Possible. but now the rule for pap smears at least is that they start for everybody at age 21 regardless if you're sexually active or not um but that's okay. not to say that's the first time you go to the gynecologist which is another kind of myth out there you don't just mm-hmm. wait for a pap smear to go to the gynecologist. It's actually recommended that you go for the first time somewhere between the ages of 13 and 15 because that's oh, where okay. we talk to you just about – because you're developing. You're a teenager. Mm-hmm. You know, boys are starting to come into the picture. Your body is changing, and we talk about all of those things. Um, and you, you know, come every year or we even have to talk about birth control depending on – because some young girls are active at that time. Mm-hmm. So there's lots of benefits to coming to the gynecologist earlier. But – Pap smears will start at age 21, and usually breast exams start at age 20. And the pap smear, depending um, on what type of pap smear that you get done, usually it's every three years until the age of 30. And then at 30, we start adding on the HPV test or the human papillomavirus test Mm. to the pap smear. And that allows us to spread out the pap smears to every five years. So as long as your pap smears are normal this whole time, that means you get it every three years from 21 to 30 and every five years from 30 on. Wow. Yeah. But you still need to go to the gynecologist every year. Okay. <laughs> okay. Not even more confusing. <laughs> There's a lot of things that we do. Like every time – another kind of myth is that, you know, every time I go into somebody's vagina, they think I'm doing a pap smear and that's not true. You know, we are looking at different things. There's different, there's, you know, STD testing. There's different things that happen to the vulva and inside of the vagina that's not always a pap smear. So I do a vaginal exam on you every year, but not always the pap smear, which is actually taking a brushing of the cells on the cervix. So it's a specific test. It's not just me going Oh, in there. that makes so much sense because when I was – sort of in my early 20s, yeah. I think, you know, it's like right around the age, like I'm going to question the doctors, I'm questioning authority. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember hearing like, you get a pap smear, it should be every three years. And I remember going to an appointment, at my gynecologist, and they're like, oh, well, we're going to do a vaginal exam. And I was like, no, but I had a pap smear done last yeah. year. And I mean, she was just sort of like, well, just just lie back, like, lie back, like, <laughs> let us do our job, which is fair. Like, I have like, no, like, 
experience yeah. or expertise. Um, yeah. But like this is now making it to me though. <laughs> I mean, I hope so. <laughs> like, I hope like gynecologists yeah. in the future explain yeah. so that there's not like another <laughs> out there like being like, but why? <laughs> like, exactly. Um, but no, that actually, that explanation yeah. like just made a light bulb click. So thank you. Yeah. yeah. A lot of people don't know that. Everybody thinks as soon as I go in the vagina, that's what I'm doing. But the pap is super specific. It's looking for changes of the cells on the cervix. And then once mm. you get over 30, it's looking for the HPV virus. And the whole point of pap smears is to look for precursors for cervical cancer. So it's not that you have cervical cancer. There's like precancerous cells and early changes due to usually the HPV virus that we sometimes have to act on to make sure that you never get cervical cancer. So the pap smear is a very specific thing that is done at the gynecologist. It's not just the vaginal exam. Mm. I was just wondering, since since we mentioned it, and I think like HPV is sort of something that like, uh, it's it's not like, it's not one of our original questions, but just because we mentioned it. Um, yeah, because I, I, I know these days, because I think like I said, I'm from rural Canada. We're at least 10 years behind. When I was a teenager in high school, we didn't talk about like the HPV vaccines. But mm-hmm. I think these days I've heard a lot about it. So I've heard about like Gar- Gardasil. Um, uh-huh. But then also like, you know, I, I don't think, yeah, I haven't had it. I haven't gotten the HPV vaccine. Mm-hmm. And then I'm just wondering, because I've heard like once you've reached like, was it 26? Like it's kind of too late to get it. Do you agree with that? Or like who should get an HPV vaccine? What is it exactly? So initially it was for the ages like from 9 to 26 for females. um, Right. And males can get it as well. Um, So a lot of times, at least these days, like when I first got the HPV vaccine, I was 20. It's when it first came out. It was just the Gardasil. It only protected you against the four most common types of HPV at the time. So, um, and if you have already been exposed to HPV, it's not going to protect you against the types you've already been exposed to sexually because that's Mm. how you get it. Um, It's only the others that are in the vaccine. But now there is a vaccine that protects you against the nine most common types of HPV Mm -hmm. that can lead to cervical cancer. So it's even a wider spectrum. And ACOG, which is um, kind of like our governing body for OBGYNs, they're actually pushing to get it approved up to age 40. They're saying females up to age 40 can get this vaccine. So I offer it to all my females up to that age group. The only thing that hasn't really caught up yet is insurance coverage. Mm. So right now, insurances, at least in the United States, are covering it up to age 26 and maybe, depending on your insurance, not up to age 40, even though that's what we're recommending now. Okay. That's interesting. Yeah. Bouncing off this, I remember – sorry, you were going to say something. Continue. No, I was just going to say that, you know – that's kind of why people probably still say it's till 26, even though we're okay. kind of pushing it a little bit further out. Because a lot of women, as they get older now, they're even getting new sexual partners. Some people are getting, you know, divorced or whatever, and they're getting exposed to different types of HPV. So it's not just to protect young women and girls. Mm. Sometimes older women and girls need this protection too. Yeah, it's so women. important. Yeah. Yeah. So – Going off this, I remember in your, I think it was your pap smear episode where you talk about Gardasil and Mm -hmm. HPV. So I, for example, I got Gardasil when I was 15 maybe. So I had like the three doses of it. Uh But I remember you saying it's not recommended to get the new vaccination that includes the, I guess, like protection against like the nine type. Yeah. Is that, so is there like a reason for that or... 
Um, they're think I think the reason is that because the most common HPVs, they're numbered, all the HPV mm. viruses. Um, so there's like 16 and 18, for example, are the most common ones that can lead to cervical cancer. And that was in the original vaccine. And then the nine kind of expanded to 41, 45, all these different other numbers. So I believe the thinking is that you kind of already protected against the most like the most dangerous strains, the 16 and 18, and not necessarily needing the other ones. I'm not really sure how I feel about that, though. I'm still (laughs) – because, you know, there there are these other strains and they've Mm -hmm. identified it. So it's like why can't I just get the vaccine that extends it? So I really think it's a great question, and I might be starting to propose that question soon myself. And also I feel even in my OBGYN magazines that I get and things like that, there's new things coming out with HPV and the HPV vaccine. Mm. So I don't think we're done yet. That's Yes, that's the recommendation right now. I'm not sure if I 100% agree with it, but that's where we're at. And we'll see what happens in the future. Yeah, just it's like <laughs> a stay tuned. <laughs> but I'm in your boat. I have the same one. I'm only, I only have the four, so. Okay, so if it changes, let me know if I you're will. like. <laughs> recommendation is different. Go get the vaccine. <laughs> Um, okay. So pivoting, um, just a little bit, still obviously same topic overall. (laughs) Um, your episodes on PCOS and endometriosis are quite popular. Uh, yes. They're my most popular, I think. Um, I understandably, because I think there's a lot of like misinformation or non-information about it. Cause I remember personally when I was leaving Korea, I had, I think it was like a pap smear, maybe a few months before and they were like oh you have PCOS and then like just like left it at them they're like there's nothing just continue living your life um so how common are these conditions and how are they treated are they treated yeah um they're pretty common I can't off the top of my head I don't know the exact number of people out there that have them but in the people that I see in my office I mean all the time a lot of people okay. have PCOS. A lot of people have endometriosis. They're super, super common. And they don't really get treated well or at least spoken about well or discussed mm. well with everyone. So potentially that's why my those episodes are the most popular because everybody's just trying to find information. Yeah. Um, and they can be treated. There's many different ways that we can treat both PCOS and endometriosis. Um, PCOS in particular – it depends on what your goal is. So if it depends on if you're trying kind of to get pregnant or not, or it depends on Mm. if you want to be on hormones or not, um, which route we go with the treatment. There's even like some diets and things out there that can help and a little bit of weight loss and things like that. So you don't necessarily have to be on birth control to treat either of these, to be honest. Um, Endometriosis is similar as well. It's a little bit more tricky with endometriosis because like the amount of endometriosis you have is not necessarily correlating to your symptoms. Mm. So if I would look into your abdomen, you know, while you're asleep and with a surgery, I might only see a few spots of the endometriosis, but your symptoms might be, you know, very painful, lots of issues. Or I might see your whole entire abdomen has endometriosis and you have like no symptoms. That's not even why you came to me. So it's a little bit tricky with endometriosis, um, but we can usually find a way to manage it. Um, With that being said, you know, some people, they don't get 100% relief 
with the pain and different issues that they have with endometriosis, but hopefully we can at least get to a better lifestyle or a life, period. Because a lot of people with endometriosis, they're really struggling trying to mm. just be normal, be themselves. So that's kind of the goal there. Every person is different. So it's really hard for me to specifically say yeah. what to do. <laughs> yeah. Because everybody's different and we have to kind of figure it out. And it does it's not just a one-time visit to me and I'm like, oh, this is it and we're done, you know. <laughs> we have to try different things, sometimes over a few months or years even, to figure out what's gonna work. Mm. Yeah, it's tough. It's really tough. It is tough. And like I, I really appreciate that like you're here and talking to us about it and that you do your own podcast because I think like you know, mm. it, was, it was really interesting, like up until like, I guess, like a couple of years ago, like these are things that I had never really heard about. And then suddenly, and like you were saying, it is really common, just yeah. kind of like, you know, suddenly, like, you know, a couple of my friends were like, oh, like, I, you know, finally talked to a gynecologist, yeah. finally talked to a doctor about this. And, you know, they like, turns out they have PCOS, or turns out they have endometriosis. I have like one of my friends um, has been like struggling with her periods for years, because like, well, she has like more of an absence of periods. And I think it was like she, there was one whole year, like without hormonal birth control or anything, she didn't have a period. And then finally, <laughs> someone was like, I think you might have PCOS. Like, let's examine you. It's like, it's wow. It's crazy to me. Yeah. That, like, like some people yeah. come in and I'm like, oh, you know, tell me about your period. Let's say it's their first visit with me. And they're like, I'm like, oh, your period's regular. You know, they're like, yeah, they're regular. I'm like, okay. How often do they happen? Mm. Um, well, you know, like every five months. I'm like, <laughs> what? <laughs> I'm like, <laughs> Come on, let's talk about this. Let's, <laughs> let's delve into this. We have to figure out what's going on. But these, yeah. I mean, I also think that a lot of PCOS endometriosis, a lot of women's issues are just coming to the forefront now, which mm -hmm. is great. You know, a lot of the internet's talking about them. Celebrities are talking about them. You know, unfortunately, things like that, that actually makes our issues more heard, but at least they're happening. Yeah. So I feel like a lot more women are coming to me with the right words or, you know, kind of understanding that this might not be right. Let me at least talk to a doctor. Yeah, I think mm. it's fantastic. Like even just, you know, in my own family, I remember, I think, I think my mom had some difficulty getting pregnant, you know, back in like the seventies after she got married. Mm -hmm. And uh, what did she, she told me that the doctor told her that she had an inhospitable womb. Oh gosh. Yeah. <laughs> just like, yes. <laughs> Yeah. It's so vague. And I'm just like, I don't think your doctor knew what was going on, mom. Like, Yeah. That's, I mean, that I hate those terms and those are very old school yeah. terms. Um, so, yeah. Just to say that and then to just be done with it. Like just to say that and like you're yes. leaving the office. Like mm, what does yeah. that even mean? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So yes. Uh, I'm so thankful for modern medicine. <laughs> I know. So, I know. Yeah. So another, another kind of pivot, this is more of like a sex related question. Um, yeah. Is there such a thing as a G-spot? Because it's something that I hear a lot about. And then I hear, like, you know, I've got a lot of friends who, like, you know, they talk about their sexual, uh, like, experiences. And they say, oh, I've never had an orgasm. My boyfriend can't find my G-spot. But I've heard, like, mixed information about that. Yeah. So it's never really been proven um, okay. if there's a G-spot or not. I mean, it's not consistently found in each person. I've seen studies where they do like imaging, trying to find a nerve bundle because that's what the that's what the philosophy is, that it's like a nerve bundle on the anterior part of the vagina that's really more sensitive and can lead to an orgasm. And people have searched for it and there's just really inconsistent results. Um, so I would say the jury's still out. 
Mm-hmm. I don't know if I'm a believer. <laughs> um, I really think that female sexual pleasure mainly comes from the clitoris. Um, when it comes to like making that orgasm like happen quicker as opposed to a particular spot in the vagina. Mm. But um, I think people are still searching for it, but I don't – scientifically, it hasn't been proven. That's so interesting because I feel like it's such a common thing. Like you open up, you know, those like – I'm imagining like a Cosmo magazine and yeah. it's like how to find your G-spot. Like I feel like pop culture has really like latched onto the idea of a G-spot. Yeah. I don't know why. There's even procedures that people have been doing to try to enhance the G-spot, like inject <laughs> inject different things into the vagina to make it more plump and – it's been, you know, kind of poo-pooed by our society. <laughs> and gynecologist society is like, you know, these procedures are not proven. Not This is not proven. The G-spot is not proven. Like, please stop kind of promoting these things. So, yeah. 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 So, you know, I was talking about this with a friend the other day. And then, you know, Sam and I actually have a friend who's experienced this. Uh, and I just kind of wanted to know, like, how common or uncommon are miscarriages? Because I think a lot of people who miscarry, um, they feel like, like, you know, it's a huge amount of kind of guilt, mm-hmm. honestly. And, you know, they get they feel really horrible about it, of course. Like, you know, like aside from just, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Like mourning, you know, they also have like this guilt on top of it. But, you know, I've I've spoken to a lot of people who have experienced mm-hmm. miscarriages. So, you know, I'm I'm kind of wondering like, well, how exactly common is it? So the statistic is everyone out of four pregnancies will end in a miscarriage. Wow. Yeah. So it's relatively common, to be honest. And it's another issue that I'm glad is being talked about more because it used to be so silent, you know, like if you yes, have a right. miscarriage, mm-hmm. you suffer alone and nobody knows and it's just very damaging to the family, to the female, to mm-hmm. the psyche. It's, you know, so I'm glad people are talking about that more. But yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty common. That's why, unfortunately, as an OBGYN, people come to me and they're pregnant. I try to be as excited as I can for them. But in the back of my mind, you know, especially when they come to me very early, Mm. I try to, I don't know, kind of set expectations. Like, congratulations. I'm so excited to make sure you're doing this. You're doing that. Come see me. You know, let's get through the first trimester because it's way more common to have a miscarriage too in the first trimester. Right. So I try to be as excited for the new family and the new mom as possible. But Mm -hmm. when you come to the OBGYN, like we're always thinking – I don't know. We just think of all the bad things because it's just so. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. It's like you know yeah. everything that could potentially happen. I know, and I hate to say it because I love to be excited for my friends and my family and my patients, which I am. But yeah. I, also, it's fine. I'm the doctor. I'll take the burden of just watching these things. So we've known that these things are common for a long time, you know. Mm-hmm. So not only just miscarriages, but there's even a type of miscarriage that's a blighted ovum where you just make an empty sac with no baby inside of it. There's so many things that can happen. Oh. Like I truly think pregnancy and having a baby is a miracle just because I know of all the things that can go wrong or go the other way. So to get mm-hmm. through to it is just, I mean, it's amazing. Um, but, and when you have one miscarriage, it doesn't mean that you'll continue to have miscarriages all the time. So most women that have two, three, four, five kids have had one miscarriage at least at some point. Interesting. Yeah. So they're very, very common. Um, and they're very sad when they do happen and it's, you know, mom always wants to blame themselves and things like that. And it's usually never their fault. Yeah. Um, I think thank you so much for saying that because like you know I I feel Mm. that way when you know my friends talk to me about that and I'm just like you know you did everything right it's just sometimes yeah yeah. 
And like, oh, yeah. even it happens more than I thought it happened. Cause I was just like, yeah, like I've heard a couple people, but like, gee, one in yeah. four. Yeah. It's super, super common. Nobody really used to talk about it. So we didn't, or most people don't know that, but you know, three out of four have a baby. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's real. Yes. yes. Look on the bright side. Like the glass is more no, than half yeah. full. Um, well, thank you so much for sitting down with us today. Yeah, uh, we appreciate all of the insight and sort of like just like brain drops you just like gave us. Um, <laughs> and we're truly grateful that you came and joined us today. Thank you guys so much for having me. This was great. And I will do this anytime. We can talk about anything. <gasps> yeah, <laughs> yes, of course. Oh, my gosh. We would love to have it's you back. Thank you. Oh, so so if our listeners want to learn more about vaginas, you know, or hear more of you, uh, where can they follow you? So on Instagram, I'm at Four Vaginas Only. My podcast is also called Four Vaginas Only. It's on iTunes. It's on Spotify. It's on basically everywhere you can listen to podcasts. And I also have a web page that you can get links to my Instagram and my podcast, and that's fourvaginasonly.com. That's it for today, folks. Thanks so much for tuning in. And as always, please support this work by subscribing and donating to our cause at www.teamgetoveryit.com. Donors get access to specific content like stickers, t-shirts, and postcards from our journey. You can donate for as little as $5 and the benefits build from there. Go to our website for more information. Or find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Team Get Over It. Thanks for listening. And catch us next time on Get Over It.